Our text today is the same as the gospel reading from John chapter 20. I just want to focus in on one small section of what John has already read. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you to fill us with your spirit today as we receive it and cause us to rejoice in it. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is here present with us and in us and, and with us. So we, we ask you to strengthen us and, and give our hearts levity and, and joy as we ponder these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. How is it possible that we can miss something that is right in front of our faces, right, right in front of our nose. How is it that you can miss something? How many of you guys have stared into an open refrigerator looking for the mayonnaise, and your wife tells you it's right there, and you say, no, it's not. And she says, it's right, it's right next to the mustard, it's right there. And you say, I can't, I can't see it, I don't, we don't have it, we're out of mayonnaise. And she says, look, move the, the, the salad dressing, it's, it's right there in front of you, and it's, I, it, we're out of mayonnaise. And then she reaches right in front of you, and it's right there. I thought it was so clever, and I wrote this earlier this week, and then yesterday it happened again. Yesterday, <laughs> I'm looking for a cleaning supply, and my wife tells me it's right there. It's right there in front of me. No, we're out. We're, we don't have it. And she says, no, it's right, it's right there. How is it? How often are we so focused on our assumptions of what we think um, is reality, and our brain automatically filters out certain information, even important information. You get locked into your work, and you don't hear someone calling your name, or you don't hear the phone ringing. You tell your teenager to clean their room, and they say, it's clean, spick and span. Are you sure? Did you clean your room? And uh, you open the door, and there's a pile of dirty laundry in the corner and four dirty cereal bowls stacked on the desk. They don't see it. They don't see it. They think it's clean. People who study human behavior call this inattentional blindness. We think important objects, we think important events and facts will automatically grab our attention. But that's not always the case. They often don't, particularly when our attention is focused on something else. We become so fixated on a task or fixated on an assumption that our brain filters out all information that doesn't support our fixation. So we, we end up more readily listening to information that supports our narrative, but we ignore or we downplay information that does not. So we all have blind spots. Now, through humility and through awareness and through discipline, we're, we're able to overcome this. We're not um, you know, uh, doomed to always uh, have blind spots. We can, we can work through this. In the middle of John's account of the resurrection in John chapter 20, John admits his own blindness. John admits the blindness of the other apostles when it comes to understanding what was happening. I just read it. He says in verse 9, For as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. All of these events on the morning of the resurrection, all these events were highly confusing which is all very, very strange. And they don't fit, none of these events fit with anything that they were expecting because they did not know the scriptures. Now on the one hand, we can sympathize with them. We can sympathize them with them for not understanding. I mean, this was the most amazing, unbelievable, astounding thing to ever happen. But on the other hand, we have the whole canon of scripture and we have the perspective of history and, and we look back and we ask, how could they not know? How could they not expect this? 
Let's remember first what John tells us happened that morning. On the Sunday after the crucifixion of Jesus, on the Sunday after the death and burial of Jesus, Mary Magdalene comes early in the morning before the sun comes up while it's still dark to perform the final burial preparation for the body of Jesus. He was crucified on Friday and they took his body down from the cross right before sunset. Remember, the next day is the Sabbath. It's Friday, the day of the crucifixion. The next day is the Sabbath. So they have to get his body down and they didn't have much time for a proper burial. A certain disciple named Joseph had a tomb that they could lay him in with just enough time, just enough time to get him in uh, before the Sabbath, wrap him up, anoint him, get him in the burial cave, and wait until after the Sabbath to finish the work. Well, Mary gets there on Sunday morning, now that the Sabbath has ended, she gets there on Sunday morning to, to do the work. And she finds, the first thing that she sees is the stone that covered the mouth of the burial cave the stone was removed out of its place. And we get the idea of seeing, we've seen enough art and Sunday school illustrations uh, that, that the stone was just kind of rolled over, that it was just kind of moved a few inches or maybe a few feet. But that's not the word that John uses. He doesn't say the stone was nudged. He said it was taken away. The stone was flung out of its place. It's the same word that uh, Jesus uses when he says, if, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can pray to this mountain and it will be hurled into the sea. It's the same word Jesus uses in the parable of the uh, wedding feast where those who are not ready for the bridegroom are cast into outer darkness. Uh, they're hurled, they're cast. Somebody asked me this morning after the first service, did you mean that uh, the stone was yeeted? And I think, it, I, think that's the, I think that's the Greek word. It was yeeted or yoded. Um, and uh, that's the word that's used for the stone, though, that, that Greek word that was hurled or flung. It was launched. It was tossed. And this is highly unusual. Why is the stone moved so far from the mouth of the grave? Mary sees the grave open, and so she runs. She knows that can't be good. And she runs to go find Peter and John, and she tells them they have taken away the Lord. They who? Well, she doesn't say. It's just they. We don't know who's taken him. We don't know where they've taken him. It, it, could it be grave robbers? That doesn't make any sense because there's nothing to steal. There's nothing of value there. Uh, maybe the Jews wanted to desecrate his body. No, the Jews are done. They think it's over with. Why would they uh, desecrate themselves with uh, a dead body? None of this makes sense to them. Nothing Nothing computes. Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb, and it's this uh, humorous scene where the younger man, John, gets all the way to the tomb, but he stops at the door, while Peter, the older man, runs, and he just barrels straight in there, barrels past John into the tomb, stooping in and looking down, and he sees the burial clothes are laying in their place. The head cloth is folded up. It's laid aside like you would... Uh, fold up a napkin after you're done with a meal. Uh, the grave clothes aren't just scattered around the tomb. They're put away. If someone had robbed the grave, they wouldn't have taken all this effort to strip the body and, and, and leave the sheets that he was wrapped up in folded in the corner. They would have taken everything, or if in the melee the shroud fell off, it would be strewn out the door and maybe in the yard. It's very, very odd, very strange. And that's when John confesses that they were shocked. They didn't know what to think of any of this. They weren't expecting any of this because John says, 
we didn't know the scriptures. You know why we didn't see this? We didn't know the Bible. We didn't understand it. We didn't know how this all was put together. How many times, though, how many times did Jesus say that this was going to happen? To those who were asking for a sign, Jesus gave them the sign of Jonah. He said, just as the prophet Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart, in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, uh, just about every year, we need to reset ourselves and remind ourselves of the timeline, the timeline of the crucifixion and resurrection, because I know what you're thinking. Every year you get to Good Friday and say, okay, what, this doesn't, there's not enough nights here. There's not, how do we get from Friday to Sunday morning with you know, three days and three nights? Well, the heart of the earth, when Jesus says the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three nights, um, the heart of the earth, I don't, I don't think he's talking about, talking about the grave. He's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the heart of the earth. And he spends three days and three nights in, in the city. Now remember, he goes into the city on Palm Sunday. And everybody rejoices to see him and he goes up to the temple. But then he doesn't spend the night there. He doesn't come back and stay in the city until Thursday. It's Thursday where he comes in and there's a room prepared and he eats the supper with his servants, with his apostles, and he, um, he washes their feet. That's Thursday. Thursday is the day he's betrayed. <clears throat> he's betrayed that night and he's taken into custody on Thursday night. He's detained all night. So that's his first night in the heart of the earth. He's crucified on Friday and he goes into the grave and that's night Two, he spends all day and all night Saturday in the grave. That's night three, and then he comes out on Sunday. He spends three nights, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And every time Jesus talks about this, he talks about it in this three stages. His betrayal, his being delivered to the scribes and Pharisees is the first step of that he's delivered, he dies, he rises again. And he, he talks about it this way, his deliverance to the, um, to the scribes and Pharisees and delivered to the hands of men is the first step. And that's, that's how this timeline works. And Jesus told them all of this was going to happen. And if they were listening, and if they were watching, and if they were paying attention, they would know that just as the whale spit Jonah out on the third day, so the grave would most certainly eject Jesus on the third day. The grave couldn't hold them. They could have put that together. Though... Jesus didn't always rely on symbols and he didn't always rely on pictures and Old Testament types to tell them what was going to happen. In fact, he told them plainly. He told them plainly over and over and over. In Matthew 16, he says, uh, Matthew writes, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. In Matthew 17, again, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. When they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about what you just saw until I've risen from the dead. And Peter and James and John were there, and they heard him say that. Later, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. 
Jesus told them over and over and over again, using stories and using signs and then just telling them plainly, as plain as day, that he must die and rise again. And they missed it. It was right here. It was right in front of their noses and they missed it. It was information that they were not prepared to incorporate in their understanding because they were fixated on a certain perspective of Messiah. They had selective hearing. They had inattentional blindness. Their idea of Messiah is that he's never going to die. Messiah is going to come. He's not going to need to be resurrected because he would never be defeated. He's certainly never going to be put to death. He's going to come and he's going to reign forever. How could dying be a part of that? That doesn't make any sense. And so his death is a shock and it's a horror and they think it's over. And that they all scatter because they think, well, he, that we must have uh, banked on the wrong man. And so that's why even when Jesus told them plainly what was going to happen, they got confused or they get dismissive or they just ignore it. So when, when Jesus tells uh, the men, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer many things and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised the third day. Peter takes him aside and tries to straighten Jesus out. He says, look, look Jesus, you're you're all wrong about this, man. This is not how this works. Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. He says, Messiah doesn't die. What are you talking about? False messiahs die. Defeated messiahs die. And there've been plenty of those. But you, Messiah doesn't die. Get this straight. Get this in your head, Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response? He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're acting just like Satan right now. What you're saying, Peter, is satanic. When we think of Satanism or we think of satanic behavior, you know, we think of teenagers spray painting pentagrams on overpasses or, or we think of 1980s heavy metal bands or we think of Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. We, but that's an oversimplification of Satanism. In fact, those are the kinds of things that Satan would want you to get real scared of, like to trick you into being afraid of those things so that you miss the real thing. Satanism is a theology of glory without any suffering. Satanism is a theology of self-promotion, of, of pride and arrogance that doesn't care about what God says and doesn't care about God's timing and doesn't care about God's plan for the world. Satanism wants to skip over all the hard parts to take shortcuts to the easy parts. And that's the great lie because this is, this is impossible. Uh, glory only comes through the grave. Re you only get resurrected after death. And so remember how Satan showed Jesus all the glory of the earthly empires and he tempted him to take the easy way. Just a little false worship, just a little idolatry, and you can have all of this. Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms. And Satan didn't show Jesus something ugly. He showed him something glorious. It wasn't a bad thing to want the nations. It's good for Jesus to rule the nations. But he was tempting Jesus to get it the wrong way, to get it the shortcut way. Good things become idols when we grab hold of them in sinful ways and when we try to get good things through false worship or through idolatry and not by obedience and worship of God. The way that God moves man to glory is through testing and through the process of sanctification and waiting on the Lord and maturation and growing in God's time. You must learn patience. You must learn to hope in God's promises. You go through death before you get to life. 
And, and Satan tempts us to jump over, to skip all the hard parts. But even Jesus, we read, learned obedience. Even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. But the point is, the apostles had absorbed this demented, distorted, satanic view of Messiah. And, and this view had taken on a life of its own, and it wasn't informed by the scriptures. And John admits this. He says, we didn't know the scriptures. What did they miss? What did the scriptures say about the resurrection of Messiah? They had the words of Jesus, but they weren't listening to him, but they should have listened to the Bible, right? They didn't have the gospels yet, but they did have the Old Testament scriptures. Where did the Old Testament say that, that this was going to happen? How did the Old Testament set them up to expect the resurrection of Jesus? Well, from the beginning of your Bible, you start reading the Bible, you see that God is always bringing life out of death. He's always delivering his people. He's always redeeming his creation through resurrection. In Genesis 1, the world is covered in darkness. There's no life until God spoke the word of life. Then the dead world abounds with living things. God brings life out of lifelessness. Then God sets the world in motion with day and night. Every night, everything gets covered up by darkness and it's resurrected in the light of the next day. God established the seasons of the year. We go through this annual cycle of the death and the fruitlessness and the darkness of winter, the cold of winter, which is resurrected in the new life of spring, the growing season of summer, the harvest of the fall. And that brings us back to the sleep of winter. And, and this is built into creation, in the patterns of creation. God has formed the world in such a way that life is always coming out of death. Light is always coming out of darkness. When God created Adam, he didn't make Adam out of living things. God created Adam uh, out of dead stuff. Man is not descended from other living creatures as Darwinists and evolutionists would have you believe. God created Adam from the dust. He created Adam from lifeless matter. And he breathed into Adam the spirit of life so that Adam became a living soul. Man's life comes directly uh, from God's life. And then even though Adam had life, he didn't have the potential to extend that life or to reproduce that life. He couldn't be fruitful and multiply all by himself. So God put Adam in a death-like sleep. When God put Adam to sleep, it wasn't like a little Sunday afternoon nap. He took a rib out of it. You want to be knocked out, right? You want to be under heavy anesthesia if somebody's going to take a piece of you out. And actually the Hebrew word there is God took a side out of Adam. He took a chunk out of Adam. And Adam was in this death-like sleep. And God took this side, God took this chunk and built woman. And when Adam woke up, God brought her to Adam. And God demonstrated there that life uh, and glory come out of death. From death comes fruitfulness. And, and Adam is made more whole after going through death. You get your bride and you get your future and you get your glory and you get your children after death. You must die. You gotta die to yourself. You gotta die and you get glory. That is the pattern. So, and this, this flows throughout history in every story, in every page of the Old Testament. Israel is buried in Egypt. They go through a death-like experience. The land is covered in darkness. The angel of death hovers over the whole country and they survive. They survive that. They're brought out of that. They're taken through the sea. They're given a new beginning in the wilderness and they're brought from death 
to life. And Israel is a new creation. Yahweh is the God who brings life out of death. For everyone else and for everybody else and everywhere else, out of covenant with Yahweh, death just means death. Death just multiplies. Death is the end. But with Yahweh and in covenant with him, Yahweh is the God who brings life out of the most hopeless, dark, and empty circumstances. You see, all of this was there. All the symbols and all the patterns were right there in the scriptures. But John says we didn't see it. We didn't notice it. We didn't put it together. When you're reading the Old Testament straight through, you see a barren womb. And then you read another story and you see another barren womb. And you read a little bit further and you see another barren womb. And every single barren womb, God gives life. God gives children to the barren. So after a while, you should pick up on it. You should see, oh, there's a barren woman. I know what's happening. The Bible spoils all of its stories all the time. You know what's going to happen. You see a barren woman and you, you know, okay, we're about to have babies. That's what's going to happen next. You see God's people in desperate circumstances surrounded by enemies and everything looks like disaster. Everything looks like it's covered up and swallowed up in darkness and death and hopelessness over and over and over. And then you watch, just watch. I know what's coming. God brings the victory uh, every single time. If you are trained in the patterns of scripture, you ought to be able to say, oh, there's a tomb. Watch this. Oh, there's death. Oh, I know what he's up to. I know what he's doing now. Watch Watch this. If you're trained in the patterns of Scripture, you ought to be able to see that the grave would not be the end of the story, especially when it's plainly stated. Like in Psalm 16, it's just one place. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches from Acts chapter, or, or, uh, Psalm 16, rather. In, in Acts 2, Peter quotes Psalm 16, and he says, David here is singing about Jesus. When David writes, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Peter says, David told us this. David said that the Holy One would not be left in the grave, that his body would not see corruption, that he would be given life and he would be exalted to Yahweh's right hand. Now, they only put this together after the resurrection, but it was right there all along. They had Psalm 16 and had sung it in synagogue for a thousand years. And yet, after the resurrection, finally, it hits them. Whenever, whenever Paul preaches or writes or teaches, he's, he's like this walking concordance, right? He, he's, having, he's so internalized the Old Testament that every time he talks about the work of the Lord Jesus, his mind lights up with multiple references to what the Psalms talk about and what the Proverbs say and the prophets say about, about what would happen with Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled every promise. You go to Acts 13 and read his sermon in uh, Antioch, and there he quotes Psalm 2 and Isaiah 55, and he also quotes Psalm 16, which, which Peter quotes, and he, and he goes to even Habakkuk, and he shows this, this harmony of the Old Testament authors on the subject of Messiah, that they all say the same thing, that the Son of God, the Messiah, is going to inherit all the promises that God made through the prophets. Jesus is the one who is raised from the grave. Jesus is the one who ascends to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the one who rules over all creation. And the prophets told us all of this was going to happen. This was all in the Hebrew scriptures. 
and we missed it. And so now what this means for us is that as Jesus has life out of death, so all who are in him share in his eternal life. All of us share in his exaltation to the Father. All of us have our fellowship to God restored, all of us who are in him, and we reign with him. Uh, God has set us in a position with respect to the nations and respect to the world that we stand with Christ and in Christ. We intercede for the world, and the world is blessed and given life through us. We disciple the nations because of the way that Jesus has been established as the first fruits of the harvest of the resurrection, because he has received the fullness of glory that is ours and the glory and the life that will be ours more fully, now we can look at Jesus and we can say, that's, that's what's in store for us. He has already received the full blessing of the Father. And what that means is that blessing is secure. That life is secure in Christ. He is complete and he is alive and he is abounding in full strength. The accounts of Jesus after the resurrection show him eating and enjoying fellowship and, and, and being with his people. Mary embraces him. Thomas touches him. He's not a ghost. He's not a vision. He's real and present, which means that he's utterly defeated death. There's no lingering weakness. With the resurrection of Jesus, God has ushered in a new creation, a new world. The whole universe runs differently now because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I, I know I've said this many times, and, I, and, and sometimes I think you might scratch your head and think, what do, you, what do you mean when you say that this is a new heavens and a new earth on the other side of the resurrection? There's still suffering, there's still death, there's still heartache and pain and sickness. That new heavens and new earth stuff, that's way, way off in the future. Well, no, everything is different after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Everything has changed because now a man reigns over all of the cosmos. This was God's goal from the beginning. He gave to Adam rule. Adam messed that up. Now Jesus comes and he has been exalted over creation. That, that's God's purpose. Now uh, we have been given nearness and access to God in the heavenlies. We're not separated by zones of holiness and uncleanness like they were under the old covenant. We have been given the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness and all of his power. Satan is chained and his influence is severely limited. Once uh, corruption spread, now life spreads. We, we just, we don't have a full appreciation of what life was like and what the world was like before the resurrection. We are shocked by acts of violence today and we're horrified because they're not really that common. They're, they're uncommon. In the, in the old world, brutality was commonplace. If you study the practices of the, of the pagan societies of the ancient world, it's, it's all the stuff of nightmares. It's unspeakable horrors. But since the resurrection, the leaven of the kingdom has been working in and through the world, slowly growing like an acorn into a mighty oak. We're still looking forward to the great and final day of the Lord that is coming, the final judgment when God will perfect everything and will set everything right, right completely and finally. But in Christ right now, we taste and see and know the reality of the new heavens and new earth that is rushing in and the eternal life that is ours now. And that's 
John's message in his gospel as he's careful that we don't ever make the mistake that they made, that, that we understand the scriptures, that we don't miss it. He, he, when John writes his gospel, he writes it around this theme that the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation is embodied in Jesus. The, the gospel of John is a retelling of the creation account. It's a recap of Genesis with Jesus at the center of the new creation. Let me do this very quickly um, and, and just show you a couple of very uh, um, interesting, wonderful things about how John writes his gospel. Where does John's gospel begin? Well, some of you can quote it. Some of you know John 1.1 1, 1 off the top of your head. But John's gospel begins just like Genesis begins. In the beginning, it starts with the very same words. In the beginning, John writes, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So if you open up John's gospel for the very first time, you see right away, this is a story about creation. This is a story about beginnings. We're going to see things made. We're talking about creation work. And on the first day of creation, what did, what did God make back in Genesis 1? The first day of creation, there was light, and the light was separated from the darkness. And so what does John write about? The very next thing that John writes is, in him was life, and his life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He is the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So, so John writes about light. He writes about John the Baptist, who's not John the Apostle, John the Baptist, who bore witness to that light and who's immediately contrasted with the darkness and the disobedience of the Pharisees, men who love darkness rather than light. So, so John, in the opening chapters of his gospel, he follows the days of creation because Jesus is the new creation. Jesus is the new Adam, and a whole new world is being created around Jesus with him at the center. So keep on going. What was the second day of creation? Well, in the second day of creation, in Genesis, waters below were separated from waters above. And so what does John write about? Well, he writes about the baptism of John the Baptist and how he distinguished his baptism with earthly water from how Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, which is from above. And we see that play out in the baptism of Jesus, the waters below and the waters above, the anointing of the Spirit above. And so you don't miss what he's doing. John will always say, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. He's giving us... An, a creation account. In, um, in the third day of creation, what happened? Think back to Genesis. Well, the dry land appears, and you have uh, land and trees and fruit and the produce of the lands. You have plants and seeds and trees. What does John write about? The next thing. You have uh, John the Baptist directing his disciples to Jesus, and they ask him, where is your home? And Jesus says, I'm from the land. I'm from the people of the land. And immediately, Jesus' ministry starts to bear fruit. Other men believe and join Jesus, and they become his disciples, and they tell others, and they join. And, and it's so on the nose that just so we don't miss what's going on, Nathaniel is sitting under a tree. Uh, the, the, the third day is about land and trees, and then John tells us about land and, and trees. On the fourth day of creation, in Genesis, we get sun, moon, and stars to rule. In John's gospel, Jesus is the light, the Messiah, and the apostles gather around him as the new constellations. The sun, moon, and stars rule, and so Jesus and his apostles are the, are the new rulers of the new creation. <clears throat> the fifth day of creation. 
is concerned with the sea and all of its creatures. In John, we have fishermen and we have uh, fishing villages, fishermen who are going to go out across the seas and take the gospel and fish for men. And that, that brings us up to the sixth day of creation. Now think back to Genesis. What is created on the sixth day? Well, we have man and woman, and they're told to be fruitful and multiply. What comes next in John's gospel? We have the wedding at Cana in Galilee. We have a man and a woman. Um, God blesses uh, this marriage through Jesus. Jesus blesses this wedding with an abundance of wine. He's the mighty bridegroom who comes to pursue his own bride and to enjoy a great marriage feast with his people. Day seven of creation is when God rested. Well, in John's gospel, Jesus takes his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they go to Capernaum and they rest for a few days. The eighth day is the first day of the new creation. The eighth day is the day of resurrection, the first day of the new week. And in John's gospel, this is the, this is the day when Jesus goes to the temple for the first time, declares its judgment, and that's the day where he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus speaks about resurrection on the eighth day of John's gospel. John is deliberately laying out his gospel around the new creation that Jesus is bringing. This is a new creation account, a whole new world with Jesus. Everything runs different. Everything is new. The point of all this is that John is intentionally writing this new creation account with Jesus at the center. And when you do this reading, you read through John's gospel, this new creation um, theme it's all over the place. It's all over John's interaction with Nicodemus in chapter three. It's with the woman at the well in chapter four. It's with the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter five. In chapter five, Jesus declares, my father is the one who raises the dead. Jesus uh, keeps repeating this and John shows us this. He keeps this in front of us throughout the gospel so that we never miss it. That John has shown us that Jesus makes everything new. Jesus has transformed everything. This is a new creation. This is a new world on the other side of the resurrection. And if, and if you're joined to Jesus, you have a new birth. And so nothing is the same for you either. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so this new world, this new creation, this new arrangement of heavens and earth where man is now welcomed into the presence of God. This is why the church has always stopped to celebrate this day, the day of resurrection. Every Lord's Day is a memorial of the resurrection, but especially once a year, we make it a special point to focus in on and rejoice in and celebrate the resurrection because in the resurrection of Christ, all of the big important questions, all of the daunting questions, they're all answered they're all settled. What, what are the big questions? Well, what does the future hold? What does the future hold for me and for the world? Well, look at Jesus and look at his resurrection. Everything is headed for him. Everything is headed for what he has, which is perfection and life and glory. No sickness, no weakness, no death, no sin, no pain. The question of what is true? Well, this question has been decided. Truth is defined by the one who went into the grave and who came back out of it. Truth is defined by the one who has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. There is no question now, no question about who must be obeyed. There's no question about who must be worshiped. It's, it's settled. No one else in history has done what Jesus has done. No one else rules over everything. The man who died for the world who died to give us peace with God the Father, the one who rose again, 
He's the one who gets to define reality, no one else. So because of this, as long as we're in Christ and with Christ, we don't ever apologize for telling the truth. You can be confident in the truth. If you love humanity, if you love the world, if you care about the world, you speak the truth. If you don't love people, you can speak lies and you can enter into this fantasy world and tell people what they want to hear and worry more about how they respond than what, what God requires. But if you live in the real world, the world where Jesus reigns, you don't traffic in lies. You stand in the truth. The truth because of the resurrection of Jesus, the truth is not up for debate. It's been decided. The debate is over. Jesus is king. He won. He defeated Satan and the grave. He won. And, and that's all there is to it. In Christ's victory, uh, we have the truth established. And who is the truth? And because of the resurrection, all of our pain and sorrow and loss and death itself is swallowed up in Christ's victory. The worst thing that you can think of ever happening to you, losing your own life, physical death, the worst thing that you can think of is no longer the worst thing. Jesus has taken the sting out of death. The angels ask Mary, why are you weeping? She thinks that Jesus is the gardener, and she's not wrong about that. He is the new Adam. He is the new gardener come to, to this new creation. Um, uh, the, the angels ask her, why are you so sorrowful? Why are you weeping? Why are you acting like everything is over? Why are you overwhelmed with sorrow? This is not the time for weeping anymore. God wipes away all tears in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a day of great rejoicing because Jesus has defeated our enemies. The world has been made new and we have life in him. Let's pray. Oh God, you have delivered us from the power of darkness into your kingdom of life and light through the mighty resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so fill us with your risen power. Pour out your spirit upon us that we may abide in your eternal joy through Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.